people who get that one of the huge harms in our world is big government and its ability to just kill people wholesale and ruin their lives and imprison them and so on, they tend to just be good on stuff. That was Paul Jacob, and this is This Week in Common Sense. This Week in Common Sense is a podcast devoted to covering the big stories of the week that have appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. That's where Paul Jacob writes daily commentary and has been doing so since 1999. My name is Timothy Verkula, and I'm here to help him rehash the stories. Here we go. You know, if I think about, like, what what is the main thing I'm fighting, I'm fighting totalitarianism. I, it's like, and I saw a... a Years ago, I think it was a copy of uh, 1984, there was some quote from uh, uh, Orwell about totalitarianism and kind of suggesting that a lot of academics were totalitarians. And I can't find that. Oh, that's unfortunate. But that would be fun to do. You know, we might put that Huxley quote up at the end of this. Or why not right now, near the beginning? Because we just talked about an Orwell quote, which we can't find. But we do have this uh, Huxley quote that I just sent you in the mail a little while ago and uh, from my Facebook adventures. It's a great quotation. By means of ever more effective methods of mind manipulation, the democracies will change their nature. The quaint old forms, elections, parliaments, supreme courts, and all the rest will remain. The underlying substance will be a new kind of nonviolent totalitarianism. All the traditional names, all the hallowed slogans will remain exactly what they were in the good old days. Democracy and freedom will be the theme of every broadcast and editorial. But democracy and freedom in a strictly Pickwickian sense. Meanwhile, the ruling oligarchy and its highly trained elite of soldiers, policemen, thought manufacturers, and mind manipulators will quietly run the show as they see fit. And that was all this Huxley and Brave New World revisited. Uh, all this. I said that right, too. I'm like on You're some on kind roll. of roll. <laughs> I am so bad at names. Uh which, you know, like in real life, I try to be really good with names. Um, you know, remember what people's names are and how they're spelled and, and how they're actually pronounced, no matter how much I have to practice. Uh, but, but it's like, especially when I'm doing this, when we used to do the radio scripts and so on, names that I might say every day, much less the, you know, the guy from Bhutan or the, you know, Somebody, some name that's really difficult, but names I would say every day I would like stumble over. I mean, it was just, and I would like get nervous, you know, and I, and I tend to not get terribly nervous. Being nervous is a very good thing for people who are speaking because it gives you energy and it just makes your mind concentrate better and so on. So nerves are good, but the more you speak and do stuff, the less nervous you get. So, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe maybe someone should like frighten you right before you start or something. But but it is funny how uh, how you you get nervous and then little things like some name you you uh, just just torture. Most people these days probably don't know what Pickwickian is all about. That's a Dickens, Dickens' first novel is the Pickwick Paper, the Pickwick Papers, and I stumbled just to prove your point. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't need to talk about that because what he's talking about, of course, is the farcical nature, the uh, silly and and extravagantly non-true nature of the democracy that is being birthed in our time, that Huxley predicted in the fifties and sixties. We live in a representative democracy that I have often called the greatest, freest totalitarian society in history, because there is a huge, not a whiff of totalitarianism, but an embrace of our ability to do everything. And if we get the right experts and the dumb people don't mess us up. 
you know, we want everyone to vote, but it's kind of who gets to fool some of the people. And of course, I don't happen to believe that dumb people exist as dumb people. And I don't happen to think that people necessarily vote so much better who are brilliant than those people who might struggle intellectually. And um, but but it but there is this embrace of democracy that especially during the Trump era where, you know, it's just uh, the Washington Post changes its little motto to, you know, democracy dies in darkness. And, um, you know, their whole idea and most people's idea in politics of democracy is we win. Otherwise, it's not a real democracy. Otherwise, everybody was tricked or they were cheated or they were and and maybe because I'm a libertarian and <laughs> we lose all the time and we get used to it, um, it's, it, you know, it just that's not my view. And it's interesting as I've tried to sell people on the wonders and the possibilities and the incredibly essential check on government that citizen initiatives are where citizens can do it without any politician saying it's OK. That's really the whole key of an initiative and a referendum where the legislature passes something and citizens say, you know what, let's vote on that. And they petition, they put it on the ballot, we vote on it. That sort of, of people power is just an essential check. And I can't think where I'm coming back to now. Well, I was uh, going to mention something about democracy uh, because this has been on my mind a lot for the last several years but even this last week when a friend of mine mentioned that he thought Mao was rather democratic because there was huge popular support for the Communist Party when the revolution was occurring first happening in China and I made the point that I don't define democracy as the majority gets what it wants because majorities often support tyrants that's but the tyranny isn't democratic. Just because a majority supports something doesn't make it democratic. What makes something democratic is that a majority or a supermajority or a consensus or something is implemented and limited in some ways that allowed minorities to exist. Because democracy doesn't exist if the majority gets anything they want. That just means that it's a, 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 a tyranny of the majority, which is yes. not democracy. No, nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. And, and I, I, I should take that back because, OK, there are some <laughs> crazy people. There are some people and some of them are, are roaming the streets who believe that. But it's so few. I go to international democracy things. I go to things in the United States where most of the people I know who believe in democracy and it's very few. But most of those people live in the United States who believe that we should vote on everything. And that every day there should be a vote on what we're going to do later and and whether you can do that. And, you know, er everything is everybody's if we vote that and that sort of crazy democracy. And that's crazy no matter what system you have. It's it's essential freedom and human rights that everybody's after. But it seems to me that democracy, while you can find some cases where people did side with a tyrant. It's usually not an overwhelming majority. It's a tiny majority. Oftentimes it's a, it's a plurality. You know, you think of Hitler first taking power in Germany. That was not 52, 58% of the people of Germany said, let's put Hitler in. That is not what happened. I don't know what the percentage was, but I believe it was well below 40 and it may have been below 30 when he first 30% of the of the vote when he first got in and then soon became chancellor. And and most of that was political stupidity on the part of other folks. And democracy and the and, and the folks who were standing up for the basic rule of law and, and what we understand in the US as a representative democracy had failed miserably and had failed to control violence on the street from both communists and fascist Nazis. And that became a huge issue and why we might be scared today in the United States. 
But the reality is, when you think of all the times where government has gone berserk, think of how many of those are because voters voted the wrong way. Like you think of Germany, and it's hard to say voters voted exactly the wrong way. They, the majority of voters did not vote for Hitler. And very soon, what did the Nazis do? Did they go, this democracy is great, we're getting all this power? No, it was gone. It was gone 110%. And of course, the, I think the biggest threat in the world today are the Chinazis. And that's the, the right term for them. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, I think is the most dangerous force in the world. There was a, a question on Jeopardy that made me so mad this week. My wife and I like to watch Jeopardy. We don't, we don't get to talk much or see each other, you know, because we're always busy, but Jeopardy, that's that's what we have. No, uh, uh, it is a wonderful show. and We have so much fun. And, and it was on right as I was coming up. And, you know, we both go on rolls. My wife was on a roll tonight. I mean, she was she could have been on the show. We could be rich. Uh, she did miss one as I was coming up the stairs. So that made me feel a little bit more in the game. But but the the question on Jeopardy, that's what you're wondering. It was this country has 900 million registered voters. Now, there's only two countries in the world that could that have 900 million people. India, which has over a billion, I think it's what, 1.2, something like that. And China, which is like between 1.3 and 1.4. And I could be wrong on India. I'm not wrong on China. It's closer to four too. Uh, either country could be the country that had 900 million. Now a guy buzzed in, I knew the answer immediately. A guy buzzed in and he said, China. And I thought, oh, you don't know anything? Because of course in China, they don't vote. They don't like democracy. They have a little cabal called the Chinese Communist Party that controls everything. There are no popular elections. This isn't uh, the Chinese people opted for something different. The Chinese people opted for Tiananmen Square and thousands of people were murdered by what were then called the butchers of Beijing for murdering all those people because that's really not very nice. And since then, it seems like until very recent times, the United States treated them like wonderful people that we need to get. We should have you guys over for dinner. And and what was, you know, Biden has has made some strong statements about Taiwan. And he's kind of said, hey, you know, China, we're we're here and so on. But during the campaign or before, uh, well, it was actually during the early parts of the campaign when someone said something about China, he said, look, these are there are no competition for us. I don't know what planet he's living on. Everybody knows their competition. Um, that's not that's not the biggest problem. But he also said, they're not bad folks, folks. And that's where he's wrong. That is where he is so, so wrong. And that's Tuesday's uh, commentary, the China syndrome. Uh, and uh, we uh, Doug Bondo, who's uh, uh, a guy who uh, was in the Reagan administration, worked uh, uh, works for Cato Institute, wrote a piece uh, that's just excellent. Uh, but it looks at China and he missed some of the things. You know, he didn't get to mention anything about, you know, the extermination of Falun Gong in the country and so on. But he, he does talk a lot about the religious uh, repression in the country. And of course they're scared because they're trying to be the God and the everything and they don't want any false gods before them. Um, but go read the China syndrome. We talk a lot about the problems in China. Uh, this doesn't get all of them. Someone uh, uh, messaged me afterwards and said, well, he didn't mention anything about the uh, one child policy, which of course now is two child policy. And in some rural areas, it's a three child policy which is pretty much the truth is I heard Molly Yard, who was once the head of uh, national organization of women call the Chinese one child policy courageous. I don't know if people have seen uh, what is it? One child nation uh, documentary by a, a uh, pro-choice 
woman who made the documentary, but it's about the China's one child policy. And, you know, you had children ripped out of their parents' arms and murdered in front of them um, to kind of get the message through that, hey, we're serious about you only get to have one child. I mean, the government does have to kind of draw the line somewhere, right? That seemed to be, and Molly Yara, hey, they had to do it. It was kind of what you have to do. That's, and that's so much we see of the West. My whole point in the China syndrome is that whatever you think the proper policy for the United States government, I'm not, when I talk about what's happening in the world today, I'm not always talking about what's the proper policy of the United States government. That's an important issue. But sometimes I'm talking about what's the proper policy of you and me? What is, what is it that's going on? And then we can decide what our government should do, what we should do. And I think you have to look at China as a totalitarian genocidal monster. Um, and the list just goes on and on. But, but the, the West likes to ignore that because there's 1.4 billion people that we might be able to sell to if we can jump through the hoops of the totalitarians, of the Nazis, of the Chi-Nazis, as they say. And, uh, and that's, that is a, a big mistake. And we are making it because we're not being wide-eyed and we need to be. Um, but, and the, the, the one child, two child, three child policy, which I'm going to forget to mention, which was the whole point of getting, getting into it, is the government decides. That's the problem. The problem wasn't the number one. I mean, that, that is kind of a problem because I, you know, I had three kids and I wouldn't have minded having more. And so one would be a, a troublesome number. But it's not, this isn't a number game. It isn't how can our government get the right number of kids I'm going to have. That's freedom. And the idea that something like our power to recreate life we find ourselves miraculously alive and we have the power, no matter what, throughout most of history, to procreate. And now in modern times, no, the government's going to decide. And if the government says two or if you're in rural areas, three, that doesn't make it any less totalitarian. And so, but... But, you know, the truth is there's never been much condemnation of that policy in the United States because we have always been so stupidly fixated on our own issues. And, and I'm not, you know, I happen to be uh, pro-life in the sense that I really, really abhor abortion. I want the government to do nothing to facilitate it in any way. I... You know, and I don't want to go into a long thing on abortion, but it's a very problematic thing for government to get involved in. In a free society, asking government to police women's wombs just seems to me to be a bridge too far. And and so I'm not looking for the government to do anything. But because of that politics, we've ignored for decades and decades the level of tyranny that is going on in China. And, and all I'm saying is let's recognize it and then let's talk instead of let's ignore it. Um, now, I have a bunch of theories about this. I mean, why would Americans be so sympathetic to the anti-natalist policies of China? And uh, one is that, as we've talked many times before, you and me, uh, anti-natalism, being against giving birth and having children is a big, huge doctrine in the West. It's been going on all our lifetimes. It has been preached. It... I feel like I was the victim of a huge propaganda campaign when I was a, in grade school, that having kids was a terrible thing. I was told flat out that, hey, you're, you're going to have you're going to have like a foot of square foot of room for each person. If we don't stop having kids by the year 2000, that's how much room we'll have. I was told I had just moved to Arkansas from uh, New Jersey outside of uh, New York city. And had been there many times to, you know, watch the tigers, hopefully beat the Yankees. Um, but, uh, and I always loved New York. And I, and, and so I, you know, I, I'm, I'm living in this strange 
southern place and they're talking about how in and i believe it was in the weekly reader about how some people in new york and maybe the, you know there's seven million people or something maybe one uh but we're wearing gas masks because of the air pollution and i remember kind of as they were discussing it just thinking what, what are you talking about and, and raising my hand and saying well you know i just moved from that area of the country and i've been to new york city you know many many times and i've never ever ever seen anybody wear a gas mask and the response was well it says right here in readers <laughs> in weekly reader that uh you know that's the, that's the case but we have we have faced that propaganda our all our lives uh people are told the best thing they could do is is have less people so we don't screw up the planet and so on as if having more people you necessarily screw up the planet i think we can help the planet um that's a yeah basic difference in people's opinions about the value of people uh and uh, it's an interesting one especially for those of us who read or talked to. I had the pleasure of talking to uh, Julian Simon, the author of uh, uh, the, okay, now I'm blanking his book. His big book is, is The Ultimate Resource, uh, wherein he argues that the more people actually, the better for us is that we help each other out through markets and, and communities and so forth, and that the evidence is clearly against antinatalism. But antinatalism was a big deal in the United Nations. And antinatalism was also something that Huxley, you talked about earlier, had flirted with, but he looked at it in his first big way in uh, Brave New World, wherein everybody was decanted, that there was no natural birth. That's the story of Big New World, is that the setup, you first are introduced to the world of Brave New World, where there is no natural birth. And, uh, then, you, and then the story becomes finding the savage who is actually a naturally born of a mother. And so that's the, that's the story of Brave New World, basically, is, is, is that a person who's born naturally uh, confronting a world in which everybody's decanted and programmed. And Huxley in Brave New World Revisited, which you quoted from earlier, uh, that there he explains how important propaganda and government policies and, and working together, he doesn't say the welfare state, but the welfare state is one of the main drivers of this. And the other main driver are the experts in the CIA and other agencies of disinformation. Their business, one of their businesses has been to encourage antinatalism. I don't know what really they're up to because we don't have a very much uh, transparency regarding the CIA. Uh, and people forget what they learned from FOIA requests already. I mean, there have been many FOIA requests we know a lot about it, except that no one knows a lot about it because people forget what we learn from the FOIA requests. Uh, so we live in a democracy now in which we're sort of, we're running on the steam of experts, right? We're, we're, we run by, the, the, by the, the inputs they give us and propaganda is a big part of it. And you talk about how that's been carrying on in the uh, private sector, so to speak, with the big social media agencies, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, Parler being one and MailChimp being another, and they're controlling speech and what who may say what. And that's what your uh, February 5th and February 3rd pieces were about uh, this week. There's a gun group in Virginia, uh, the Virginia Citizens Defense League. You know, I've, I've met a lot of people from there. They've had rallies. Uh, they had a rally a couple of years ago when Democrats first took the legislature and we're talking about a lot of anti-Second Amendment legislation. And one of the things we heard about the big rally was how racist it was. And then they splashed pictures up of some of the racist people there, many of whom were African-American. So uh, it just didn't quite, well, and they were black. So they weren't just from somewhere on the continent of Africa, you know, six generations ago. They were black folks. And and it's this group has been attacked constantly. They've had all these rallies. The only thing you really notice from their rallies at the Capitol is that there's no trash left. They're very nice people. There's been no problems. And they had this rally planned. And of course, in this heightened environment of fear and fear mongering, we can't allow always peaceful people 
to have a protest. And so, but the, the government didn't stop them. And of course, neither did MailChimp, but MailChimp is, is a, is a company that does, uh, we, we send out, we don't use MailChimp, thank goodness. Uh, but, uh, they send out, you know, it's a company that you can send newsletters out and information. And all of a sudden as this March is coming up, MailChimp decides they're not going to, they're not going to do it. And they argue that there's communication out there that they are concerned there could be violence. And so they don't want anything to do with it. And once again, and you just see this again and again and again, no mention of specifics, the evidence, here's the conversations. I mean, if there are conversations going back and forth, somehow using their platform that say terrible stuff, I think all of us would go, well, okay, yeah, do what you do, what you're doing. They, they never bring it. They never bring any evidence. And so, you know, what do you do? What do you do? And I've had so many people talk about, hey, that, that's their right as an as a independent company. Well, yes, it is. It's also our right not to be a customer of MailChimp. And I will never be a customer of MailChimp until they apologize profusely. And then I'll consider. Yeah, uh, and you were considering switching to MailChimp a year ago. Yes. Yes, we were. Yes, we were. And you may not have done so for no better reason than that it was a bother to change services. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I certainly didn't decide not to do it because they are a rotten company that for no solid reason would take a customer and just throw them out because it's the political wins kind of make that doable. And, and that's really, you know, that's the problem. We talk about basically the same problem. Uh, on Friday, a, a much different case, uh, a woman who was fired for having an account on Gab and Parler. Now, you're probably wondering, what did she say or post or like on Gab or Parler? Oh, my goodness. Is it is it, you know, racist or, or transphobic or violent or no mention by the agency. And, and let me tell you the agency, just in case you're in the literary field, this is Jennifer DeSharo Literary Agency. Um, they don't mention any wrongdoing, any post, any statement, anything she did on Parler or Gab that was in the slightest bit politically incorrect in poor taste, posting too late at night to where they think maybe <laughs> she won't work hard enough the next day. And of course, nothing about work, nothing about, hey, she wasn't doing her job. No, she was on those services. Now, part of this, you can imagine if someone chose something else, there would be 68 lawsuits saying that, oh, no, 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 you can't let go of somebody for that reason. But here, it's no reason except being on a social media platform that the company doesn't like. And of course, even though it's not granted in our society as fully as it should be, freedom, let them do what they want to do. But we, as people who want robust debate and fairness have to stop facilitating unfairness and uh you know it and and we have to be willing <clears throat> to to do it with our pocketbook the the left has done much much more of that they're constantly I mean, it just seems like it'd be hard to live you just have a list of the different things you didn't ever buy and so on but uh I think we're going to have to start, I, you know, we, if you have a phone, there's a notepad. You can just keep a list of the, oh, no, no, I'm, let's not go eat there. Uh, oh, no, 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 I'm not, uh, I, I'm not going to go, you know, solicit that literary agency. Um, I may just not even write a book. That'll get them. No, uh, but it, it's, the, the thing that's funny, though, is if the argument I'm making has never been, 
the government ought to step in and stop this from happening. And yet the response is, well, that's freedom. Well, I'm asking people to look beyond, you know, that's kind of a pretty, it's free, you're free to do that, you're not free to do that. Okay, but there's not much discussion there. Is it the right thing to do? Is this what, is this the sort of society that you want? Um, Is this going to lead to the robust debate that will give us the information to run our government? Oh, oh, that's right. We don't really run our government anymore. So maybe we don't, maybe they should just tell us what our side is, is screaming at the big, you know, the, the five minutes of hate. What's our side saying? And that's a that's an Orwellian thing because of, I didn't read Brave New World. I did read 1984. Um, but what what Huxley is talking about is does make me think of another of, of the two other scripts we haven't mentioned. One, the the uh, uh, Brian Stetler at at CNN and his whole jihad against Fox and so on and so on. But also one that I won't talk about a whole lot, but Monday's was called uh, The Day and the Hour. And it was about, what it's really about is this belief in an all-knowing, omnipotent government. And of course, that's a a play on the biblical phrase that no one knows the hour and the day of the end of the world, the rapture, the second coming of, of Jesus, whatever particular point there that you believe is, is that, that key point, no one knows when that's going to be, is written in the Bible. And of course, we all the time have people saying, oh, no, it's going to be not only that it's coming soon, but it's going to be September 27th at 4.30 p.m. on the East Coast. Um and it's kind of silly, but it's the same silly to do that with climate change, to act as John Kerry, who's now the special climate change envoy, the envoy to climate change, to science. He's going to go somewhere and secretly talk to science. Um, this whole view that somehow we have nine years left to do something the scientists told us we had 12 years. Well, when the scientists told us that, it means right off the bat, they're not very smart because they don't have any evidence to show with any sort of certainty that that's true. And what they're, what they're actually saying in a lot of these things is that that's how long they think we have time to debate it and do something. Well, it, the climate has changed from the beginning of time. We don't know what all the cycles are going to be. It doesn't mean that we don't have to worry about greenhouse gases or, I mean, this isn't to negate that the climate is changing or that it's gotten warmer or colder. All those things are facts. What's being put together though is a modeling of the future that is fantasy. It's not the future. And anyone, as we quote someone in here saying, anyone who's putting some timetable on it is not playing with a full scientific deck. And if you think about it, I, I Googled because I wanted to do something on now Carrie's talking about nine years. And there's a there's a report in the BBC that we mentioned in the day and the hour uh, where they say, no, really, the next 18 months. And then I noticed that this is from July of 2019. And so it's like, wait a second, the 18 months are up. It's over. It's curtains. Um, This is silliness on a huge scale. And I think there are a lot of people who say, but I've read this and, and I think this on climate change and we need people to be focused. In other words, It's okay to lie about things or to state things in a totally ridiculous and unscientific way and claim it's science because I agree with what you want done politically or or your general view of climate change. And it's back to the, you know, if you say something against that, 
Well, you shouldn't, even if you're right. <laughs> even if what you're saying is true, we shouldn't hear that truth because then we might not be motivated to do what somebody else wants us to do. That's, that is the world we're living in, and we're seeing it in media, we're seeing it in social media, we're seeing it in science, at least government political science. And I don't mean political science, I mean science that's political. Um, and when we, when we think about the social media, that's one thing, but, but so many people do get a lot of their information, not from the posts on, on Facebook or, or, uh, Pinterest or whatever, Instagram, but they get it from the mainstream media. And of course there's been this, you know, jihad on Fox for a long time as this outlier who has a different opinion. And I just have to say that I think Fox does a bad job on all kinds of things at different times and and is in many ways as partisan and as screwed up, for lack of a better term, as MSNBC and CNN and NBC and ABC and all the rest of them. But it's so nice to have somebody who's screwed up in a different perspective who might, you know, it, it, who might give me some information I'm not otherwise going to get. And I, and I know I'm getting all the spin, but that's, that's where we are. And, and there is all kinds of talk about, well, it should just be consumer boycotts and going after sponsors and deplatforming and all this. Uh, and, and I think there is huge government collusion and all this. We've talked many times about the different work that Google and Apple have done for the U.S. government. And, and you know, it, it's not as if this is in some perfect free market. But in the conversation that uh, Nicholas Kristof had with Brian Stetler on, on uh, reliable sources, <laughs> there's, a, there's a name that I kind of question. Um, and of course, <laughs> CNN's a media watchdog, <laughs> a media, you know, lapdog. But, um, but in their conversation, they're constantly alluding to some need for more censorship and some need to come down on people who hold an incorrect position. And at one point, Nicholas Kristof suggests we need some conservative media to keep us in check. But in essence, we should get to pick the conservative media that keeps us in check. And never going against what is the most dangerous idea I can imagine. The idea that there is truth in a way, I, I believe there's truth, but that there's truth that we can officially recognize and enforce that one of the biggest problems, what, what really uh, the impeachment of Donald Trump is about, I don't think if, if you were to literally bring a, a case against a private citizen named Donald Trump, who had given a speech and had different things happen and so on, and tried to get him for incitement, for inciting a riot, uh, I just don't think you could. I think the timing's problematic. I think there's no real fighting words, violent words, uh, it's just not there. I think from a, from a pragmatic, get a conviction standpoint, what he's really guilty of is playing up this big falsehood. This big falsehood that everybody knows is false, except the problem, of course, is that, you know, there are people on the right who would say, the left knows this is not true, but they continue. For instance, I know so many people who continue to talk about some huge gender gap that is all discrimination that's, that's completely been you know, debunked. It's been shown to be silly and not accurate. Um, but, but this idea that we can set that up and then criminalize in some way or create some official system of punishment because this isn't quite criminal, it's impeachment, and you can't run again. Um, but that we can do that because what they're saying 
isn't true when it is about things that it's not so easy to prove something isn't true. Was the election stolen? Well, there's no evidence that there was widespread fraud. Well, what do you mean by fraud? Do you do you consider it fraud? I don't really. It's not the word I would use for Pennsylvania changing constitutional election requirements without making a constitutional amendment. And their, their process for a constitutional amendment takes, you know, at, at least three years. So it's, it's a, they have a somewhat problematic state constitutional amendment process, and they're not the only state. But, but is that fraud? Well, I wouldn't quite call it fraud, but it's unconstitutional. Well, then should you reject all the ballots in Pennsylvania because it was cast, you know, they were all cast in an election that wasn't constitutional? Well, you could. I mean, I think if it came to a judge, I'm not sure I'm not sure that's what I want to happen, because I'm not sure that that's would really be the most helpful thing, except in maybe teaching a lesson that, you know what, now you look like idiots because you've done something unconstitutional and maybe you hold a quick election. And of course, you might say you don't have to this time because or you can, but it doesn't really matter. We're not waiting for you because Pennsylvania wasn't the difference. But there are things like that. Now, did Trump say every time he said something about it, would I argue, oh, he said he told the truth every time? I mean, have you ever listened to Donald Trump? <laughs> I mean, he says stuff in such a, oh, this is the greatest thing ever that you, you know, everything's either the worst thing or the greatest thing or the best ever. Everybody's talking about it. No one's talking about it. He says things in ways that, if you really were to dissect the sentence, are almost never true. And he's not the only person in the world who talks that way. But can you, in essence, say certain beliefs, if you believe this election was stolen, can we define stolen in some way that we can just say no one gets to say that anymore? Or if you do, you're off this platform, you're off that platform. How many other words are we going to be able to narrowly define in such a way that you can only say them this way and not that way. And isn't the whole process of deciding what people can say and not say and what is officially true a path to just disaster, a path to a totalitarian government? And we, we see it. China is that. You've got, you know, stuff gets scrubbed off the Internet all the time. People get arrested for saying something they're not supposed to say. In Hong Kong, if you say free Hong Kong, China stinks. I mean, you're under arrest. You could go, go to prison for life. That's the world that, you know, that, that's, that's the, the path that we want to go down. And I'm sure that the people who are talking about this don't want to get to there. They want to stop someplace short of there, but I don't even want to walk down that path. And I think there's been a lot of people who thought they'd stop short of where they ended up being able to stop. Well, what we have here in the uh, CNN Trump continuum, Trump on one side and CNN on the other, and there, that is a continuum of some sort, is you have two very persuasive organizations, one man on one side and CNN on the other. and. And I guess Brian Stetler is persuasive to some people. I've never found him stomachable. Uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. No, I mentioned uh, I mentioned in the piece that <laughs> I couldn't watch it. I had to I had to get the transcript. Of course, it's often better to get the transcript anyway. But and he's also weird to look at. I know I, that's that's really a cheap shot. And but that was that's something that's often brought against Trump is he's weird to look at too. So we have two weird to look at people. They are weirdos. Uh, and I, you know, now, especially that I have long hair, I look really I, weird, too. So, you know, I, know. I like I like weird. Okay. I mean, I just have to say that it's just, it's, you know, it's something different. And and we've talked about uh, on these podcasts before about how in public life you can look like Trump. You can you can if people think you're genuine and that, that like Elizabeth Warren her thing with the beer, I probably brought this up like 50,000 oh, times. One of the worst moments her, in modern times. Yes, it, because she was trying to pretend to be somebody she wasn't. 
and and just be yourself. People will elect a geek as president. I don't have anything against a geek being president or a, a guy who always I thought the best line Hillary Clinton I, and as as regular viewers and listeners and and uh, readers know, I'm no fan of Hillary Clinton. But I thought she had a great line against Donald Trump when she said, you know, Donald, some of us prepare for these things. <laughs> and because it played into her strength. Well, don't pretend you're chatty and this and that. And, and maybe she is, but she could never pull that off. Oh, she was awful, too. Like and, Elizabeth Warren, she was just fake. As a human yeah. being, she was fake. As a politician, she wasn't so much when she wasn't trying to be a human being. <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to dissect that, but uh, no, it's, it's... But what I was getting at is that Trump plays a different game than CNN. CNN is propaganda, as Glenn Greenwald, you quote in the piece on for Friday, basically said it's propaganda, uh, and it's, it's a disinformation organization almost of the DNC. Uh, and they engage in all sorts of outrageous uh, manipulation of facts and, and logic to come to DNC-approved opinions, and uh, who knows what else they're doing. I mean, I don't really know what the command structure is exactly at CNN or any other major agency, though I know CIA is back there somewhere. Uh, I, I thought the way that, you know, uh, Project Veritas uh, was able to get audio of their conference call where, you know, the arguments for why not to cover the New York Post story... Uh, I'll tell you, it's one thing to see a major piece of news ignored and lied about. And we've written uh, about it in several different places, but especially the one where uh, talking about Glenn Greenwald uh, quote about some of it when he was on Tucker Carlson. But it, it just you had all the deep state people from the past just lying completely about it being Russian disinformation. Turns out that the FBI had an investigation, but the FBI uh, under President Trump, believe it or not, was more conscientious about not being, being a PR organization and instead being a investigatory agency and didn't publicize that it was investigating the laptop. And whereas if it had been Comey, he would have had, you know, three press conferences and written a book. Uh, so, it, you know, that whole that that's a. Uh, uh, this, uh, I've lost my train of thought there. So well, since I didn't complete mine, I'm going to just jump right in and uh, mention that Trump has a different persuasive technique, as Scott Adams will regale us with at length. And in fact, for five years now, Uh he has a different persuasion techniques, and it scares the propagandists because CNN and other people in the news media and in academia pretend that their propaganda is, you know, reason and dialectic in science, right? They pretend it's just the truth. It isn't, demonstrably isn't, and we've demonstrated it often. But Trump plays a propaganda game completely at orthogonal to what they're up to, right? It's a different kind of thing. And they don't know how to handle it. And that's why they freak out. He doesn't he doesn't talk like them. Right. I mean when you think about it, almost everybody on TV, they talk I talk more like them. I went to schools and I, you know, I learned kind of how to say things and so on. Not not very well, as regular listeners know, but but uh but anyway, you know, and and Trump doesn't talk that way. He talks totally, you know, stream of consciousness, consciousness in some ways, his his uh, rallies. But the truth is, if you listen, it's very clear what he's saying. And and he's the only president I, I suspect we've ever had who's spoken directly to the common person, to the real middle class and lower class to the. The working class that's that's below you know fifty percent, um, and 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 so and I think that some of the antagonism has been that this is he he didn't eat lunch with the smart kids, so somehow he's not supposed to be president. Oh yeah, that's it's very much a class thing. I think you're right. Yeah, I think he's been able to 
you know, be a jerk and be a cad and do other things that has certainly helped them turn what is generally a positive. I mean, I think his communication in, in some ways, you know, he's a terrible narcissist, always talking about himself. You know, he's like the he's like the, the used car salesman. Um, but there's also a genuineness to that or, or a transparency to that. For instance, um, every almost everybody you meet in Washington who's a politician, they're a narcissist big time. And with Trump, it's kind of nice that you never forget that, that it's just so out there in the open that it's, you know, oh, we've done a great job. I'm this, I'm, the, you know, and, and uh, because the truth is so much of the apparatus around members of Congress and the president and the governor and the, are people making them out to be wonderful in every way so that they don't have to do it. So they're really the, he's really the guy who never brings up all the wonderful things he does. He's got all these people working for him who bring up all the wonderful things he does. And, and so it, it, with, with Trump, there was a certain freshness. The other thing that I found amazing is that my read was he had a very thin team that, they didn't have any depth to the team. And you just wondered how could someone survive working around the clock all the time with that, with so little help. Uh, and that's not to say that some of the people working at the White House, uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway, who was, you know, roundly attacked for all kinds of things, mainly for alternative facts, um, but is, is a brilliant uh, spokesperson a uh, good, very good strategist, you know, understands things. And uh, so it's not like he didn't have any help and there were others, but it just wasn't, wasn't super deep. And so I just thought, how does one guy do this? But I think probably for Trump stepping into the presidency, the workload, the daily number of hours put in was not that much of an increase. Whereas I suspect that an Obama coming from the Senate and coming from his past life or a George W. Bush, uh, that, that the, the presidency was a huge increase in the 24-7 nature of their occupation. Right. And with Trump, it probably was not that huge an increase. Well, I think with Trump, we've learned that uh, Diet Coke and, and junk food will get you a long ways in life. Uh, but anyway, uh, I just want to say that's not medical advice. And if it were, it's really bad. <laughs> well, looking at Trump, I don't think many people desire to look like Trump. But uh, nevertheless, Trump went in office with a few obvious pitches to the American people. And the one that stuck with my friends the most, especially those who supported Trump, was his drain the swamp idea. And I think what Trump learned is the swamp was bigger and more pervasive than he ever had any idea it was. Because Trump was an unlearned man. He didn't know anything about government. He knew what he saw on TV. He didn't read books. We know this. We know he's not a reader. And we know he's not a student of any major sort. He's, you know, he's meticulous at the thing he does, the things he does. And he does some things really well, but he's not a learned man. He's very incurious about much. And he got a huge education in four years of being in office. And he was destroyed. That is, his, the, his chance at this, of draining the swamp was basically destroyed because the swamp turned out to be bigger than he had any idea. Part of it was is that he'd yes. have to hire. And, you mentioned a thin team. Well, he hired people against anyone's good advice, like John Bolton. Why would he hire John Bolton right, other than right, to humiliate? Right. Uh, and there might be, and he might have hired John Bolton to humiliate John Bolton. That might have been part of the deal. I'm not saying he, it wasn't, but he. Oh, I I wouldn't think so. But but uh, he may have decided I need a hawk to kind of argue that point, and John Bolton will be you know, a good hawk. And that's, you know, having people around with different opinions is a good thing, I think, usually. But it's good if you have, you know, if you have some people that you've had some experience with. And that's the other thing. I think most of, you know, most of the people he's working with, he never worked with before. Whereas, 
you know, uh, Biden goes into the White House. Well, you know, his secretary of state he's worked with for years, his, you know, all, all the different people, his chief of staff is different, you know, are all people he has worked with for years. Um, well, he hired the swamp creatures because that's the job of Joe Biden is to make sure the well, swamp is better. <laughs> I think, though, that people I think people sometimes think of the swamp as Congress. Which it is. I mean, it is a swamp. It is a it is a place where people come pretending that they're making lots of sacrifices and tend to get incredibly more wealth and and have a, a you know, usually an easier, nicer life. Um, you know, all of a sudden they're riding the gravy train, as we used to say. And and uh, but. The swamp is also the whole bureaucracy and the fact that, you know, there was always Trump kind of fighting back in terms of, you know, cutting some pay increase and this and that. Well, you know, that matters in a lot of places. It doesn't, you know, in most of the country, you're going to have, you know, the, the federal workforce in that state makes a difference. But if you're talking about Virginia or Maryland, that, that probably makes the difference. Um, you know, you lose them, you're you're in deep trouble and they're going to vote their pocketbooks. And it's not just, oh, well, it's the bureaucracy that's taken over. We're all being bought off. I mean, they're they're talking about sending, you know, what, uh, you know, twenty eight hundred dollars uh, into my account. And it's like and they may cut it. And of course, I'm thinking if you're going to ruin our entire society, you might as well send me some money too. But, you know, and I've said for a long time, if they made people sign for it, yes, I need this money. Just send something out that says, I need this money. Thank you. And have the people sign it. Well, I'd never sign it because I don't need that money. I mean, I, it's money's always nice, but it's, it's so they, it, it's not just Congress that's been bought off. We've all been bought off to an extent, and some of us, to a lesser extent, some of us are prickly folks who are constantly going, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sign that. I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to let you tell me I can't do this. Um, but other people tend to be more, you know, you know, Wi-Fi, this is the way to do it. Well, we all are in bed with this government, and um, and yet... We sure don't feel like, you know, that's that's the funny thing. A representative government, we don't feel like we have any real representatives. I mean, I don't know anybody who feels like, gee, in Washington, I'm sure there are people, but I don't know any of them. Our congressman, he's doing he's representing me. And and so there's, you know, there's a, a, a huge anger out there on both sides of, of the spectrum. And and the solution to that is to clamp down. It's it's like I remember during the '90s and the uh, term limits revolution, and and Republicans after being out for so long kind of glom on the term limits and and win, and it was all they're angry. And you know, anger isn't usually kind of a it's not a pretty emotion. Um, it's good to, it's good to put other things with it, like resolve and perseverance and, and good naturedness and a sense of humor. But, you know, that people are, aren't angry would be like a, a heck of an indictment. It's like when I see these, uh, approval polls of Congress and you realize only 14% approval, my first thought is, who are those 14 percent? And then, I mean, what percentage are just the congressmen themselves? It's got to be a tiny fraction. How do they get to one percent? Yep. So do you have any parting thoughts? You know, uh, totalitarianism is total government. And we don't have that. Government doesn't decide everything. And China even doesn't have completely everything because they haven't figured out how to get inside people's heads yet. But 
it is the idea behind Chinese totalitarianism, zero democracy, and a lead on top that decides everything that I think is the most frightening idea in the world. And something that if we don't stand up against it, it will take over. And it's not just in China. You see what's happening in Myanmar and in Belarus and, and any place where tyrants can get away with it. In the United States of America, however, we see the seeds of just terrible, terrible, huge government making all kinds of decisions, but also deciding that any speech to the contrary is now dangerous. Well, that leads to an ugly place that a lot of places in this world are already at. And, uh, and we have to find ways to fight against that. And it, and it, it's not, it's not just, you know, it's not to stand on the street corner and say, you know, the world's going to hell. It is to look for ways that we can push back that matter in law, uh, changing the way that that government behaves at the local and state level has had more impact, I think, on Washington than any amount of direct agitation on Washington. And we we need such a fundamental change, but it it has to happen, I think, at the grassroots. I don't think it will happen in Washington. And you see that, you know, uh, I was not. Uh, you know, I, I never saw Trump as the change agent, the outsider. I saw him into his presidency much more that way than I did beforehand. And that, I think, was largely because the reaction of the deep state, the media, but I repeat myself, the Democrats, the, you know, was, but I repeat myself and repeat myself, the, uh, was so over the top that you wonder, what are they so afraid of? Um, and of course, they would say, well, we're afraid of a man who would lead a charge against the Capitol and so on and so on. But the, throughout his entire time, there was nothing but talk of fascism and, and you know, he's, he's a horrible person. And, and yet, no, you'll see no push now to rein in any power of the president. No push. I don't think you'll see it from Republicans. You won't see it from Democrats. You sure as heck won't see it from the media. And that that really says something that they, you know, that they want this sort of maybe it's fun to cover and it's easier if one guy makes all the decisions and then you can do the studies on what he said and and you don't have to deal with all this out there, different people with different opinions. But we as people have to get together and find ways to get on the agenda. It's one of the beautiful things of the initiative process is it's one way that people can put issues onto the agenda. We, we don't have representatives in our legislatures and in Congress. We don't have a media that tells us the truth and informs us so that we can make decisions. We've pretty much been put out to pasture. You sit in the stands, cheer, yell, don't yell too loud, and and we'll play the game. And the American public, ha we have to find a way, it was the most wonderful thing about term limits, and still is, that the movement in the 90s and the effort now is a way that grassroots people can get in the game. Our slogan in 1992 was it's something you can do. And people do want to do something. And it's very hard to find out what it is. And government, the media, they're not gonna, they're not looking for ways to involve you. They're looking for ways to entertain you while they fleece you. And on and with that inspiring, hopeful thought, the hopefulness is that you're listening and we're gonna do something about it. 
Well, that was This Week in Common Sense for the first full week of February 2021. Very good. By means of ever more effective methods of mind manipulation, the democracies will change their nature. The quaint old forms, elections, parliaments, supreme courts, and all the rest will remain. The underlying substance will be a new kind of nonviolent totalitarianism. All the traditional names, all the hallowed slogans will remain exactly what they were in the good old days. Democracy and freedom will be the theme of every broadcast and editorial. But democracy and freedom, in a strictly Pickwickian sense. Meanwhile, the ruling oligarchy and its highly trained elite of soldiers, policemen, thought manufacturers, and mind manipulators will quietly run the show as they see fit. Did you notice that Paul uh, pronounced Aldous Huxley's name correctly, but he mispronounced Brian Stelter's name? Well, so did I. I'm just blaming it on him, though.